Zebras are always more fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The running joke and when in you our see them, they're exciting. But. Yeah, no, the running joke in our uh, CBL case-based learning is it's always lupus, right? <laughs> always oh, test yeah. for lupus. <laughs> <laughs> the one thing you learn from house. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> it's never lupus. Right. right. <laughs> Okay, this is uh, Rotations uh, Podcast. I'm Dr. Todd Fredericks, Assistant Professor of Family Medicine at the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, and uh, we're going to pitch it over to Nisarg. Bakshi, OMS2, our host. Yes, hello. Uh, Welcome to another episode of Rotations. This is part of our series called Specialty Spotlight. Uh, As you guys know, we like to feature one particular specialty, have a uh, physician on within that specialty to talk about what they do. Um, and hopefully expose some medical students to uh, the day-to-day life of that uh, of that specialty before they have to choose. So uh, today we're joined by Dr. Ruta Shah, who is a infectious disease specialist out in Boston. So thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Happy to be here. And then we also have on our panel, we have Sam Long, who has been on the show a few times. We're happy to have her on again. And then we also have Aaron Stover, uh, again, has been on the show before, so we're excited to have him on. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks yeah. for having us. Of course. So Dr. Shah, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Um, well, I grew up in, uh, right outside of Boston, Massachusetts, in a suburb called Hamilton. Um, I come from a uh, large physician family, so that tends to be influence both my parents. Yeah, I know about that large physician family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And my brother ended up being a physician as well. Um, so we kind of had physician life. Uh, my parents had a private practice together, so we were very deep into it in terms of hanging out there after school, you know. Yeah, so what, what got you interested in, in medicine? Um, I think at first I really was attracted to science. In college, I had a really influential um, professor um, who really captivated my attention with, with organic chemistry, actually. And I loved the class, loved her, I ended up doing research in my uh, last year. Uh, really was captivated by science. So then I ended up doing going to Dartmouth for graduate school. Um, and, you know, I knew kind of a little bit about medicine just by virtue of my parents and being around it. Um, and as I kind of did research, I felt like I was sort of missing that personal component. Um, and it just became more, more obvious to me that my niche was not going to be writing grants and being in the lab. So I started thinking about medical school and applying. So I kind of did it stepwise rather than a combined program because I didn't really know that I wanted medicine. You know, sometimes when your your parents are, are heavily influencing you, you kind of think outside the box a little bit. So, right. but in the end, I, I discovered, I think, that I really like the personal mm-hmm. uh, interactions in medicine. So now I really do clinical medicine because I really do like that day-to-day, just dealing with patients, solving things for them, um, you know, talking with patients and all that. So that's kind of, it was sort of a little bit of a circuitous route um, to get to medicine. But in the end, I'm happy, you know. Oh, that's awesome. It's amazing yeah. you say that about Ochem. It, it was my mortal <laughs> enemy in undergrad. Wait a minute, you, as opposed yeah. to, to g- general chemistry? I mean, I, I thought just, organic I chemistry is a lot easier than general oh, chemistry. Oh, I didn't. I thought Ochem was me. pretty tough. Really? Yeah. I like biochem a lot. I like regular chemistry. Oh, my gosh. I was pulling Couldn't my hair out over regular chemistry, and then organic <laughs> yeah, came. I said, well, this makes hard. sense. What's that? <laughs> I said, I agree, regular chemistry was really challenging for me. Oh, it's terrible. Oh, really? uh, I like math, so I like Gen (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting. Okay, so how did you get involved then in infectious disease? Uh, Tell us about your path there. Yeah, so I mean, I think um, when you enter medical school, you kind of think about what, it's almost easier to weed out what you don't want to do. (laughs) 
um, by the end of, you know, by, you know, clinicals, you know, and after doing the third year, I'm pretty sure I, I did not want to do something with surgery. I didn't want to like be heavily procedural. Um, so that kind of, I knew it was, I was into medicine. I knew I was going to be an internal medicine doctor. Um, and, you know, primary care didn't really attract me that much. And so I pretty much knew I wanted to be a specialist of some sort. Um, I still like general medicine and primary care, but I didn't want to have to like do that day to day. And I think uh, infectious disease offers kind of at, uh, aspects of both because you really are dealing with the whole patient. You have to consider the whole patient um, when you make a, a diagnosis because it, it's, it is a specialty that spans all other specialties. So we see, you know, obviously things with the heart, you know, endocarditis. We see things that could mimic um, cancers. You kind of have to think, does the patient have cancer screening? Are they, you know, having other symptoms? So there's a lot of masquerading of uh, diagnoses. So I think you really have to be in touch with um, internal medicine in general. And I like that. Um, and it's more of a, a thinking specialty. I'm not someone who wants to do scopes to people or cats or things like that. I really like the fact that mo most of what you get from people is extracting the information from them. Yeah. So tell so. us a little bit about the day-to-day -day life of of an infectious disease specialist, you know, at what point do you go see a patient, you know, beyond their primary care physician? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on what you do. So there's the nice other nice thing about infectious diseases. There's a huge um, spectrum of what you can do. Um, you can be heavily academic, um, in which case you may only do a little bit of of teaching, and most of it is research. Um, you could be, you know, a public health uh, person where you do more administrative, more policy making. Um, what I do is more is mainly clinical. I mean, we do have a residency, uh, internal medicine residency, surgical residency. So we work with students, all, with residents, you know, and sometimes medical students. So um, it's a it's a bit of a mixture between clinical medicine, clinical medicine and teaching. So that's nice. So I mean, I think day to day, um, if in a given week, I have two morning outpatient clinics a week that go from uh, 9 a.m. to 12. So there I'll see any outpatient consults, you know, or uh, people who are referring people because they've had, for whatever reason, Lyme disease, fever, whatever, that aren't hospitalized, you know. Sure. Or I'll, and they'll also see my follow-ups from the hospital. So that's two days a week. Um, in the afternoon, I'll see my inpatient. So we mainly do inpatient consultations day-to-day. Um, -day. So mm -hmm. we wake up to consults waiting for us, mm -hmm. uh, go to the hospital. But you're never on call though, right? You don't have to actually wake up to get to the hospital. <laughs> right. Um, so see the you know, see the consults, uh, see the follow-up. So anybody we consult on, we follow them throughout their hospital stay. So we try to see them every day or as needed after their, after their problem is, uh, you know, stabilized. Um, and then those patients, a lot of them will see in our outpatient clinic. So it does afford some continuity as a specialist also, um, where you really get to see, you know, the patient getting better, um, hopefully, and <laughs> um, see them through their, their illness. Um, the HIV patients become more of long-term patients for us. Uh, and some people do the primary care for those patients as well. So the HIV patients are patients we kind of take a little bit more ownership of um, in terms of people asking us, hey, is it okay if we do this to them or this or give them this medication? Because there's so many 
interactions with drugs and stuff. So, um, you know, and the rest of what we do is really the consults, like I said. So, you know, if there's a medical student listening to this who has their infectious disease rotation starting tomorrow, uh, mm-hmm. What advice do you have in terms, like, what are the the key diagnoses that they should know? What are what are your top ten as a specialist that you would heavily recommend to the student that they know before walking into that rotation? Well, I mean, I think we're consulted a lot for <clears throat> fever, um, and certainly getting making sure the blood cultures are taken before antibiotics is a, is a big pearl and. Um, Considering things like endocarditis, because we see a lot of endocarditis, asking the correct social history, because, um, you know, we're often the ones who ask weird questions, even simple things like really getting the uh, parents out of the room and asking, you know, have you been exposed to anything? Have you done drugs? Have you, you know, any of those more sensitive questions, which often are glossed over. Um, and uh, I think just being very astute to the uh, history of present illness, you know, really, um, it's not enough to say they've had cough for three days. You really want to find out, you know, was there a prodrome? Were there anybody sick around you? You know, the, like really getting a step by step and asking. I always say to the patient, go as far back as you want. You know, um, there's no limitation. They can talk about whatever they want and letting just listening um, and then. I think the data gathering is pretty straightforward. Um, You know, looking for the white cell count, making sure there are cultures because oftentimes those are skipped. Um, And that's, you know, if they they didn't have a full fever workup, you know, you wanna make sure they have everything done in terms of blood, urine, you know. Um, And then in the assessment and plan, I think that's the challenging part because there's so many things on the differential diagnosis. And one way to kind of uh, prepare for that, if you have more than one day, is um, to kind of uh, look at a patient and think about extracting the infectious disease um, aspects of them. You know, like, are there infectious uh, explanations for what they have? Or like, let's say they come in with CHF, you could think about what what infectious could cause that. Sure, you know, endocarditis, abscess, uh, you know, cardiac abscess, even if they don't have that, but you could kind of think about um, how the infectious disease differential could relate to that patient. Um, because I think that's a challenge in ID is that the differential kind of goes on and on and on, you know, and okay. be able to list your top few probable things. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that comes from the patient's, um, you know, explanation of how their symptoms started. I mean, most likely it's kind of obvious, more, more um, obvious things that they're presenting with rather than some subtle thing right unless they're like a very immunosuppressed patient then it may be different so i think like for id it's a learning curve so i i think um you know just getting in the mindset of being very detail oriented mm-hmm. you know um also what, what are some of the current developments going on in your field that you're you're sort of keeping an eye on um or maybe that you've noticed just emerging in the last few years that you think are going to be significant by the time that me or Sam or Aaron go on uh, to potentially pursue infectious disease? Right. Well, I think that uh, now there's a, especially in the hospital, there's a large turn towards prevention uh, and also just stewardship because we're seeing a lot of resistant infections. And that's the big thing right now, especially in the literature, resistant gram-negative infections, uh, Clostridium difficile is kind of running rampant because we use a lot of antibiotics. 
So really there's a lot of work towards um, just stewardship of like who needs antibiotics and who doesn't, um, the narrowest possible, which ones are more likely to cause side effects. Um, and I think that is a very going to have a very important role, um, including prevention of infections, like removing Foley catheters and stuff like that. So that, I mean, in the hospital, I think there's a big, and then what happens is it translates to the community. So if you have a multi-drug resistant organism, someone picked up in the hospital, they expose, you know, close family member, a community who may be in the same living facility. And then you see random community people come in with like a multi-drug resistant UTI. And you're like, where did you get that from? But, you know, we're breeding it <laughs> by, uh, by all these antibiotics. And then it's just kind of becomes part of the environment. Um, and then I think the obvious things are kind of the emerging infections we're seeing in the United States, you know, as a, as a taste, the Ebola, um, that was a very stressful time for us, although we didn't think we would see any, um, it was extremely stressful to think that we may have to face that in our hospital. Um, and just a lesson that, you know, anything can happen here and we have to be astute, you know, that first person who diagnosed it, you know, and exposed a bunch of people. That could happen anywhere um, because, you know, people travel, um, mm -hmm. including the mosquito-borne, you know, now in, in the Florida and that area, we're seeing, you know, the Zika, the dengue, you know, things are kind of moving into us so that we can't avoid it. Um, that's the other big thing. Uh, people are working on vaccines and stuff like that. Um, of course, HIV is always working on vaccines, hopefully someday that'll pan out, but luckily HIV has sort of stabilized. It's become a more chronic illness. Um, and the last thing, I think there's more and more drugs that are gonna be coming out to treat these resistant infections, because I think we've gotten to the point where uh, now there are certain infections that are really resistant, you know, that very hard to treat. As a university community doctor, the one that scares me is chlamydia, because mm -hmm. azithromycin, which is kind of like the a lot of primary care doctors seem spring-loaded to azithromycin like if if you if you have a runny nose azithromycin yes. if you have an earache <laughs> azithromycin and i'm like you realize there's only one drug to to treat chlamydia with uh yeah. that we have already access to and you're destroying it so i mean i, I don't know if you've seen you talk about multi-drug resistance i just recently had a patient dr shaw who had developed a terrible pneumonia in a matter of days and Every, he went to a big receiving hospital, and every culture was negative. They just they right. just shotgunned him with everything, and he started mm -hmm. to resolve antifungals, you name it. They did not wow. find a pathogen, but he had wow. demonstrable CT and plain radiograph mm. pneumonia. I mean, those are the ones that really get your attention, right? Yeah. Yeah, those are definitely make it a challenge, you know. In fact, it's it's easier when you get a positive culture. MBAL. They rinsed them out and still they couldn't get anything to grow. Out. Yeah. Yeah, that's very challenging, exactly. And then we do the same thing. We, you know, treat them with our best, you know, best thoughts of what the appropriate antibiotics are. And sometimes you do. You have to just cover them broadly, especially if they're very, very ill, um, until they get better. So those are the challenging things, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, you brought up uh, uh, vaccines as well. Recently, there's been some doubt on, on the efficacy of vaccines. Have you been seeing any of those uh, conditions that vaccines are supposed to prevent? Have you seen an increase in those at all in your practice? Um, in our area, there really hasn't been. We haven't. I know, like in New Hampshire, there was a little cluster, maybe I think of mumps or something like that. Um, but we haven't really encountered it here, luckily. Um, 
Yeah, I think the, the vaccine nature of not vaccinating is obviously makes it risky for the entire population, especially, you know, the younger and older whose who's, uh, immune, you know, immunity may be waning and the younger ones who don't have it yet. So um, it's definitely a setup and, you know, we haven't really had to face any of those, but I think Boston did, you know, we're kind of set out from Boston, so we're, we're more distant, but. Um, Isn't pertussis yeah. kind of like that though, Dr. Shaw? I mean, yeah, so pertussis, I mean, when I got out of medical school, you never saw pertussis. And now 20 years later, it's not uncommon at all to see pertussis in adults as well as right. occasionally a child. Yeah, I think now they recommend like the, when you get that, that tetanus booster to include the pertussis and then that boosts your immunity. But I think the immunity wanes as people get older. So obviously it's more of a, a group immunity so that people aren't exposed to this rampantly, you know, like it used to be. And, you know, if we were to go back for a second to, you know, if the med student listening to this has their rotation with you tomorrow, have you seen anything, um, whether it's in a med student or a resident or even another physician that you think is a a really great strategy or a really great pearl that you would recommend to whoever's listening uh, just as a tip for their rotation? Yeah, I think think it's sort of the approach you take with the patient. I think a thorough chart review, which a lot of people don't do, um, especially certain subspecialists who may not, you know, care about how their hypertension is controlled or something like that. But I think a thorough review, I always look at the past admissions, even if it's just the discharge summary, like what have they come in with? Past cultures, what have they grown in the past? You know, is this someone who's naive of MRSA or they had MRSA like 5 million times? so I think first, uh, at least having a thorough review of the chart so that you have knowledge of the patient. Um, then, you know, with that knowledge, you can approach the patient and kind of interview them with an open-minded fashion. So you don't want to be too broad. Like, you know, when you're presenting to your ID attending, you don't want to say, well, they were on a beta blocker for six months. That didn't control their blood pressure. They were switched to an ACE inhibitor. I mean, that's your ID attending is not really going to you know, think too much about that. You do want to focus on the ID issues, but you want to have a good understanding of their ID background. You know, it's helpful to say they've never been hospitalized or they haven't had any problems with pneumonia and this is their first episode versus that person who comes with recurrent pneumonia, you know, every year or something like that. So I think focusing on the ID relevant issues um, during the presentation and also with your history taking uh, for the patient. Um, oh, I, I know one big pearl that we like is allergies. So we like to flush out the allergies. And um, if you have a penicillin allergy, what is it? You know, did you vomit or did you have a angioedema? Uh, but yeah, I think the pearls are knowing the patient really well from ID history and the allergies. <laughs> that's my, my little plug for allergies. Well, that's, a, that's a great tip. I'm sure whoever's <laughs> listening will appreciate that. Does the panel have any questions uh, to ask Dr. Shaw? I have a question. It's a bit of a flashback to what we were talking about earlier with vaccinations. And it seems to me like one of the main issues, especially as generations progress, is that we haven't seen the devastating effects of a lot of the infections that we're Mm -hmm. being vaccinated against. So I think it seems like a particular challenge is trying to convince people that it is real and it is a concern that we should be concerned about. How do you approach educating patients and encouraging them maybe to take preventative measures to avoid, you know, a very real Uh, exposure to those kind of things yeah I mean I think you can uh, I guess the best you can do is explain to the patient the most devastating consequences of getting the infection 
um, and uh, just explaining that you need you need like the entire community to be vaccinated to really get the benefits of it. Um, I think a lot of it is education. Uh, you know, there's obviously a lot of false information out there uh, on vaccines and people not wanting to get them. But I think even simple things like we campaign for the flu vaccine. I've heard people tell me, you know, it's like a farce. It's just made up by the government or whatever. I've, people have told me this and I'm like, well, when you look at that patient who died, you know, even young people from the flu and it could have been prevented. Sure, it's not 100%, it never is. But if you happen to be the 100%, one part of that percentage that, you know, gets benefit from it, you may not be dying, you know, or even having significant, uh, you know, having to stay home from work. Um, you know, I had a patient who had CN, you know, central nervous system uh, zoster, and she had decided not to take the shingles vaccine. You know, could it have helped? Maybe she wouldn't have gotten that <laughs> debilitating, you know, zoster in her spinal fluid. She asked me that, and I said, yeah, it might have, because she turned the appropriate age. Her doctor talked about it. She read about it, and she said, well, it's not, it's not really 100%. I don't want to get another shot. So she didn't do it. And she came in with shingles in her, you know, spinal fluid, the, the zoster. So, um, you know, I think fighting small, battle, small battles first, um, you know, we are not pediatricians, so we're not as much faced with childhood vaccinations. Um, so I, we don't, I, I don't deal as much with convincing parents to get their kids vaccinated. I imagine that's a whole different ball of wax in just my you know, my rotations in medical school dealing with parents, parents can be very difficult to deal with sometimes. So that's a little bit of a different ball of wax. But, um, you know, the mo main things I'm convincing people is to get the flu shot, you know, mainly so you don't expose someone, you know, even like your small child at home, you should be vaccinated so you don't expose them. So, uh, you know, hepatitis, we often convince people, you know, who have like hep C to get vaccinated for hep B. And I explain to them, you know, you have hep C, if you got hep B, it's devastating for your liver and we have a vaccine for it. So why not take it? So they do. And most of the time, people reasonable. Yeah, absolutely. There, there is a lot of misinformation out there. Uh, and so that's a, that's a great point. Sam, did you have a question? I'm good for now. Thank okay. you. I do have a question, though, Ruta. Mm -hmm. Okay, so because the, the pictures are very, very compelling. When you look at Ebola, you see Ebola workers. They are in... They're, you know, goggles and rubber gloves. And I mean, they are as depersonalized as you can imagine. Now, here's the thing, that I th and, and you'll speak to this, I'm sure, and I want you to. You gown up, and a person is really ill, mm. okay? How do you make sure that you keep a human connection with that patient when you've put every physical barrier you can for your own protection right. between you and that patient? What is your approach? I mean, tell, tell us a little bit about that. Um try to spend time in the room with the patient. I think a lot of people tend to zip in and out, you know, and they don't want to go in. Um, I think the most, uh, the biggest barrier is often the masks, you know, especially the rule out TB, like those masks and when people can't see your face. I think, you know, the gown stuff, yeah, they're a little bit startled that everyone's wearing, depending on the color of your gown, this bright yellow gown and everything and gloves. But um, I think the masks prove to be a big barrier because you can't they can't see your face there, there's a really big block between being personal um and sometimes it's even as simple as um explaining why i have this on you know like you know 
we just want to make sure it's not something like tuberculosis. I'm just wearing this mask. Once we get the sputums, if they're negative, we won't be wearing them anymore, you know? Um, and that's because of X, Y, and Z, you know, because you traveled here, you know? Um, so spending the time a little bit, if you explain it a little bit, I think people um, feel like you're making a connection that you're, you know, trying to make them comfortable. Like, this is why I'm wearing this. Um, and I think there tends to be uh, like less visits to the patient probably, I think when that's been shown, you know, that's one of the downsides of isolation, contact isolation, any of those things, because people have to gown up. So I think fewer people, fewer stops. So I, you know, to make sure you see those patients, not just work off their data or something, you know. And, um, so yeah, I think just taking the time to, to be present with the patient um, instead of zipping in and out which tends to be the thing people do. And with proper isolation precautions, not the hemorrhagic viruses notwithstanding, do you mm. know of any case where a doctor who's got proper uh, isolation precautions, gloves and gowns, has gone over and sat on a patient's bed and put their hand on their shoulder, have they ever contracted that you know of their disease? No, I don't think so. No. No, they haven't. No. Uh, yeah. So, I, yeah, touching the patient, yeah. you know, in a reasonable way, like, shouldn't you know, if you're gowned up and doing what's appropriate. I just think it's really important to emphasize that because if you're a person, you know, we talked earlier about uh, specialists that come to your service and they're kind of dismissive or, oh, they have pneumonia, right? To remember that what if it's your your wife, your husband, your child in that bed, or it's you, and suddenly you're confronted with this. How do you want to be treated? Do you want someone to be dismissive and come in and just cursorily say, well, I've actually got my you know, neurosurgical audition rotation next month, and this is kind of irrelevant, it's a stepping stone, or do you want someone to come in and actually pay attention to you and even just listen a little bit to what's going on? I remember one particular case of a patient who was in full-blown uh, AIDS with pneumocystis and sweating to beat the band, and everybody was just avoiding them, and I put on my gloves, and I had a gown on, and I walked over, and I just put my hand on the patient's shoulder, and I said, I know you're really sick, but we've got a plan for you on this thing. And you could just see the, the tension come out of that patient's face. And it was very, very impressive to me um, how powerful that is. And I, to this day, I mean, I, I'm still seronegative. I get tested every year. I don't have <laughs> HIV. It's been 15 years ago. He was sweating all over the place. But, I mean, it's right. a really important thing, right, yeah, uh, to yeah. think about. So, man, yeah. good, good stuff. Yeah. yeah, that was really interesting. Uh, great discussion. Um, and I think it's really valuable for, for med students to hear as well. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Any other questions or comments? I don't think so. No, that's been really interesting. Yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Well, hopefully, uh, you know, if you want to come back on, we're happy to have you back on, but you got to put some stuff in your bookcase. Yeah, we'll send you a bobblehead. Uh, yeah. Well, no, see, I have my, uh, what can I show you? Okay. Yeah, give us a tour. It is sad. <laughs> Those look like boring because, books. Uh, I have a big bookshelf at home, but I hear it's a little sparse. Yes, I agree. We'll send you some rotations gear. <laughs> we'll, 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 yeah, we'll, we'll send you something. <laughs> awesome. Well, well, thank you so much for joining us. It really has been a great conversation. Yeah, super, Happy Dr. Shaw. Thank you. And Have thank a lovely you, afternoon. And thank you to our panelists for joining as well. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, see you, Dr. Shaw. See you. Thank you. Yeah. Bye. Rotations is a weekly podcast of all things medical and is part of the media and medicine family of medical storytelling. Rotations is a product of the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine and the Scripps College of Communications. Rotations is hosted by Nisarg Bakshi, produced by Todd Fredericks, audio engineered by Kyle Snyder, and video edited by Brian Plough. 
Rotations is co-hosted by a league of champions of all things medical and a few people we pull off the street. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve all rights to content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but you cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without express permission of the content creators, and you must cite Rotations as the source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by emailing us at rotationspodcast at gmail.com, tweeting us at rotationspcast, or by visiting mediaandmedicine.com and putting the word rotations in the subject line.